0: As you're turning, I'm going to tell you a little story. Uh, Almost 20, a little over, a little over 28 years ago, um, I asked a girl to go to lunch with me. And she said, uh, let me think about it. (laughs) And then eventually she came around, she said, sure, she went to lunch with me. And then we had a lot more lunches after that. And several months after that, uh, I said to her these words, I said, I love you. And she said, thanks. Yeah, literally. And, and then uh, a while after, she said back to me that she loved me as well. And then uh, a little while after that, I said to her, will you marry me? And she said, let me think about it. No, she didn't say that. She said yes. She said yes. By that point in time, I knew that she would say yes. And really, the, you know, the rest is history, right? There's just a few words spoken at the right time in the right way that changed the entire course of my life and her life. It changed our destiny because words are powerful words matter every time we speak our words matter our words can influence the course of our own lives our words can influence the course of other lives our lives our words influence the course of our lives for better or for worse others for better or for worse but our words have impact our words have have meaning and significance they're powerful things And so I want to challenge you this morning as we look in this passage just to consider, uh, are you using your words in a way that really follows God's wisdom? Or are you allowing God's wisdom to guide your words? Are your words uh, words that flow from his wisdom and bring life and healing and joy and reconciliation in your relationships? Or are your words words that bring chaos and conflict and anger and frustration? Are your words words that uh, are spoken in truth and kindness, your words spoken in anger and deceit and frustration? How, how are you using this really beautiful, powerful gift of words that God has given you? Uh, this morning, we're looking at James chapter 3, and it's a really challenging passage. I um, very, felt very challenged by it this week to just think about the way that I use my words, and am I letting God speak through me, or am I choosing my own words? Are my words bringing life and peace, or are they bringing frustration and conflict? And so uh, this is a passage that I think will really give you an opportunity to be thoughtful and let God's Spirit speak to you. So let's listen to God's words through James together, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. James writes, "'Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment.' For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members, is that which defiles the entire body, sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. What James is going to tell us first is this. Our words carry danger. And that may sound a little bit dramatic to you, but listen to these words from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Solomon writes, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Our words matter. Our words are powerful. Words are powerful. If you look at Scripture, think about the power of words. When God decided... That something should exist rather than nothing. What did he do? He spoke. He spoke. And the universe came into being. When God decided that what was broken needed to be fixed, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God spoke. And God has given to us this gift of words so that we can bring life to one another and not bring death. Words are powerful. Right? Words are powerful. Because they're so powerful, they are also dangerous. And James is going to say, in fact, the more you speak, the more risk you are taking. You sure you want to be a teacher? I felt very challenged and very convicted by this passage this week because I use a lot of words. I speak. I write. I do all of these things. And it really was challenging to me. Am I using my words to bring life? You know, it's interesting if you think about James Day, the only words they used mostly really were spoken words. Most of the people That James is writing to couldn't read or write. So all of their words were spoken words. That's not true of us today. We speak words, but we also write words. We are creating words constantly. We text and we tweet and we blog and we email. You know how many words we put into the digital universe every single day? Yeah, neither do I, but it's a lot, right? It's a lot of words. We're creating a lot of words all the time which creates even more danger. So it's interesting, if you look at the book of Proverbs, which talks a lot about words, one of the things Solomon said is this, "Where when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. You're probably not gonna regret those words that you didn't speak, but the more that you speak, the more opportunity there is to misstep. Who can tame the tongue? James says no one actually can tame the tongue. And what's very uh, sobering to me is that that God is listening to everything you say. He sees everything that we do. He hears every word that we say, and he holds us accountable for that. Notice what it says in verse 1 again, chapter 3. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. One of the standards for our evaluation will be the words that we speak. And this is not just for teachers. He starts with teachers, but then he broadens the principle to absolutely every follower of Jesus Christ. We will be evaluated based upon our words. Remember that in the book of James, written to believers, consistently one of the themes is judgment. James writes to a group of people that he wants to move on to maturity. He wants their faith to mature. He doesn't want their faith to be immature. He wants their faith to, to go through trials in such a way that they embrace God's will for them in the midst of trial. And they they develop a perseverance and endurance and strength and trust. And they don't doubt God and dismiss him and think he's not good to them in the midst of trials. Instead, they believe even more in the goodness of God. And he wants their faith to be expressed not through partiality toward one another, but instead seeing all people made in the image of God, whether they are high status or low status. And they'll be evaluated on that basis. Do they see people properly? We'll be evaluated based upon our judging of other people. We will be judged. We'll be evaluated based upon uh, the works that we do. Do we just talk about our faith, but do we live out our faith, particularly those who are in need around us? We will be evaluated. We will be judged by many things, James says in chapter 3, one of those things specifically will be a judgment based upon the words that we speak to one another. Remember, uh, James draws heavily from Jesus' teaching, Sermon on the Mount in particular, but this uh, statement by Jesus, I think, echoes in the book of James. He said, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You will be evaluated at some level at the judgment seat of Christ based upon your words. So remember this eternal life is an absolutely free gift. Do not be confused. Every single one of us, we come to the cross in need of forgiveness, and it's a forgiveness we can't earn. God just offers it to us freely as a gift. He says, all that I want you to do is to reach out in faith and say yes to the gift. When you say yes to Jesus, he removes your debt of sin because he paid it on the cross. He gives you the gift of eternal life. It is an absolutely free gift. But what he wants for your life is not just that you escape hell, but that you grow up into maturity, that you reflect God in absolutely every area of your life, the good deeds and also the good words. And as a result, he says, how you live your life, As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, it matters, and you will be evaluated on a variety of bases. One one of the the, the bases is going to be the words or the speech because the words that you speak reflect what's actually happening inside of your heart. It's not in a sense that the words themselves are the point, but the heart behind the words. As Jesus said just a few verses earlier, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. You know what a person uh, loves or hates or values or dismisses based upon the words that they say. And how difficult is it in the environment in which we live? Have you ever hit send on a text and immediately thought, ah, I wish I could get that back? And I know there's some computer science major who's going to come up afterwards and say, hey, actually, I wrote my own app, and I can install it on your phone. And it can mine the data from someone else's phone and just hack in, and it can pull all of your text messages back. You can actually read all their text messages. Would you like my app? And I, they, I, don't, I don't want to have that conversation. I'd rather just learn how to not hit send, right? Because it often is a reflection of what's transpiring in my heart. And I can say, well, I didn't really mean it, but it's already out there. And it's already having its effect And I'm not going to get it back. Now, I don't often quote to you from uh, the translation, The Message. It's not actually a translation, it's a paraphrase. And um, it's pretty loose in its paraphrase, but I wanted to share a couple verses because I thought they were just um, really vivid in their uh, description or paraphrase. This is from Proverbs 26, The Message. People who shrug off deliberate, deliberate deception, saying, I didn't mean it, I was only joking are worse than careless campers who walk away from smoldering campfires. <laughs> now, that's not literal, right? That, that's very much a, a paraphrase. But I thought, man, that really nails it. And it really lines up with what James is talking about. I didn't mean it. I was just joking. I was just being sarcastic. But you wonder, was there a little kernel of truth in how that person really feels in their heart. It's like a careless camper walking away from a smoldering campfire. And what James is trying to help us to understand is the words that we speak, even the careless words, can influence the destiny or course of our lives. Listen to verse 3 again. It says, Now if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they're still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Uh, So James actually gives four metaphors, um, bits and horses, mouths, and uh, ships turned by a rudder, Uh, and those first two are pretty kind of just neutral, but then the next two metaphors turn kind of dark and negative, uh, fires and wild animals. Listen verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. In fact, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire of the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, James is obviously using a little bit of hyperbolic language, but but his point is this. You can just have a small spark and you can set a forest on fire. You can wreck your life just by a few careless words. Politicians and pastors have gone down in flames with one careless word, one careless tweet, one careless email, one careless word, spoken or written, says can change the entire course of your life. So again, he's mixing these metaphors together to say, look, it's just a small rudder, and the tongue is small, but it can direct the course of your life, and it can direct the course of your life for better or for worse. In fact, what he's really drilling down on is the worst part of it. You could set your life on fire. You could burn down your own house. And when I was a kid, actually, I need need to modify this. (laughs) My whole life, I've liked fire. Not just when I was a kid. I still like fire. Fire, I just, you know, I'm a guy. I like, fire's really cool. I'm always playing with the wax on the candle. I like lighters. I just like fire. So my dad wanted to channel that. So he he made a fire pit when we lived in New York. uh, In our backyard, we had these woods, and he made a fire pit for me so he could teach me how to understand fire and handle fire wisely. And some of you parents are going, oh, that's just really bad parenting. But it worked worked for me. It was really good because um, he showed me, you know, first fire I built was just like a bonfire. He goes, that's too big. I'm like, look at the leaves in the tree. You can't manage that. You need to keep it inside of the rocks that we've outlined here. You need to not abandon your fire. You need to have the hose ready for your fire. Because if you don't manage your fire, you could burn down our woods. You could burn down the wood's behind our neighbor's house. You could burn down their house. You could burn down our house. You could wreck the neighborhood just like that. Fire is incredibly useful. Fire is also incredibly dangerous. And James says, this is what your tongue is like. The power of life and death are in the tongue. So are you using it wisely? Um, I, I find encouragement in the fact that he says, no one has tamed the tongue. It's not just me that struggles, right? That, and that's a little bit encouraging to me. I'm not, I'm not alone in this battle. And in fact, if you look at the greatest characters in the history of the Bible, uh, most of them struggled to tame their tongue. Last week, we looked at the father of faith, Abraham. Abraham said some really dumb things, right? Remember, he was uh, fearful, that the people of the land would uh, not treat him well or treat him wisely and uh, seeing how beautiful his wife Sarah was, he came up with a plan that he would just tell people, well, she's my sister. And that worked so well for him that he did it a second time, right? Man, just foolish words that had the potential of changing the course of his life and begin to mark him in the eyes of some as a man who didn't always tell the truth or Moses greatest leader David and Moses maybe greatest leaders in the Bible uh, Moses became so frustrated with his own people at one point that he just burst out in anger and struck a rock and as a result he didn't get to go into the promised land the one thing that he had dreamed of his entire life was cut off from him because he didn't control his speech and his anger or Peter who frequently popped off he's the first right He spoke first, and then he thought about it much later, right? He was not quick to listen, slow to speak. Peter frequently spoke quickly. Jesus, I will go to you, with you anywhere. I will go with you to the cross. I don't know about these other 11 fools, but I'm with you, Jesus. I am with you. I will go with you anywhere. I will be loyal to you. And Jesus said, you know what, Peter? Before the rooster crows, you are going to deny me three times. Hours later, he spoke other words. Words of denial. I don't know the man. Blankety blank blank. I don't know the man. Blank. I do not know the man. And then the rooster crowed. And he carried that with him for the rest of his life. Words matter. Are your words kind and life-giving and truthful? Are your words harsh? Are you first to react and respond on social media? Are you first to blurt out? Are you Peter? Words have... Consequences. It was a really interesting study. It was done by two lawyers back in the '90s. Cliff Notarius, not lawyers, excuse me, um, two uh, psychologists, Cliff Notarius and Howard Markman. They observed what they called the Zinger Theory. Okay, and according to their theory, uh, one put down. So, and this was in the context of, of a pre-marriage and marriage relationship that they were talking about. They said one put down. So, for example you never wanna do anything fun or you always say embarrassing things in public, right? Just a put down. One put down in the context of this very intimate relationship can undo or erase 20 acts of kindness in terms of relational trust that's been built, right? You can just you can wipe it out just like that. So what they observed was um, in the pre-marriage context as they were observing couples and watching them interact is that uh, those couples who use just a a few more zingers as a proportion of their speech, not a lot, just a little bit, they were much more likely to divorce later. And there have been other similar studies that have followed uh, couples from a premarital setting all the way through marriage and divorce. Uh, Rutgers University has a marriage center, and they map these things. What they say is uh, just a little bit of contempt early on in the marriage will almost inevitably Lead to divorce, right? Because that that seed of distrust and doubt in the relationship is sown, and then it drives a larger and larger and larger wedge, and it's not resolved or dealt with, and eventually uh, trust is eroded and love grows cold. And they can predict, um, In the study in Rutgers what they they defined it as a contempt, when, when uh, spouses, or even before they're married. The future groom and future bride show contempt. That is, they speak down to one another. They're, that is, zingers. And sometimes it isn't even just a word, it can be just the rolling of the eyes. And they would catalog that. So when those, those things predict, because they're powerful, words are powerful and they sink down deep. That's why I hate sarcasm, because with sarcasm, you always wonder is there just a little seed of truth in there? Is there something coming from their heart that really believes that thing? And you can say, I was only joking but it's already there, right? The spark is already lit and the fire can burn down the relationship. So James says, are your words words that bring life and healing or are your words bringing uh, destruction? And he does speak in really, in a sense, very um, hyperbolic language, but he's making a point. We can't master this area of maturity on our own. Right, we need God's spirit. We need God's wisdom. And that's where he's going to turn next in verses 13 through 18. Uh, our words carry danger, but God's wisdom brings peace. Read with me in verse 13. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is saying, okay, so who among you is wise and understanding? Okay, you think you've got this figured out and you really think you want to be teachers. How about fewer words and more action? Because eventually your words are going to reveal their source. Our words are like like seeds that are planted in the ground and eventually the plant comes up and the fruit is born and through our speech it reveals the source of our words and there are only two sources, James says, and that is ourselves or God. And in fact, he describes one uh, type of wisdom as, he says it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. It is wisdom from below. It is earthly. It's just focused on the here and now. It's not thinking about God's will and God's way way in eternity. It's not looking through the temptations and the trials. It's just right here. Get what I need right now. It is uh, natural, he says. It is literally, it's soulish. That is, it is selfish. It's a person saying, Wisdom, or the way to live, is for myself. It is, he says, demonic. Notice that echoes what he said earlier. Chapter 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is, in fact, set on fire... By hell, what is the nature of, in a sense, uh, demonic wisdom? Is it's a wisdom that grasps for itself? Right? It's a wisdom that's, that's taking, not giving. So let me remind you: there's another interaction that Jesus and Peter had, where um, Jesus had some followers, and they were uh, saying, "Well, he's Jesus is uh, he's the prophet Mosea, Moses." promised. He's Elijah, right? Who is he? Maybe he's Messiah. And, and people were just stirring around, not sure. And so Jesus came to his disciples and said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, always first to speak, he says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, nailed it. Well done, Peter. You are Peter, and upon the rock of this profession you've just made, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Man, Peter, you nailed it, right? So Peter's like, yes, boom, boom, thumping his chest, right? Serious theological flex on the other 11. Here we go. Peter, you are the man. He is, he is riding high. And then Jesus says, but I need to tell you something else. Yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified by this generation in three days, rise again. And Peter says, Jesus, I'm Peter. On this rock, will you build your church? That's not going to happen. That's not the way. You're not going to a cross. I don't want that for you, but I sure don't want it for me. I'm not, I don't want to follow a Messiah who's suffering and rejected. That's not my way. That's not right. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Oh. <laughs> yeah. All that flex, gone. Right. Get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter was not literally Satan. Satan's fallen angel. Satan, Peter's a man, right? They're, they're different beings. But what he's saying is, Peter, you are serving the function of the adversary in my life right now. Because you're tempting me to avoid the cross. And that's God's will for my life. Your words are demonic, Because they're tempting me to grasp something for myself apart from God's will for my life, which is to go through the cross. You're tempting me to follow Satan's plan for my life and not God's plan for my life. You are taking from me, and you're tempting me to be a taker, not a giver. Remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, there were three areas of temptation that were put in front of him. Satan came to him after having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights And in his hunger, Satan said to him, make the stones into bread. Take something for yourself. Jesus, you know you can do it. I know you can do it. You made the manna in the wilderness. Take for yourself. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but only by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What God has given me right now in this moment, even in my hunger, what God has given me, that's enough. I choose God's way. I choose God's wisdom. I don't need to grasp anything for myself other than what God has given to me right now. I'm content. Even though I'm struggling, I'm content. I trust my heavenly father. And then he took him up on the pinnacle of the temple. He said, jump down, prove when the angels come and they swoop you up, prove in front of the crowd below in the marketplace that you're the son of God. And he said, no, you don't put God to the test. It's not what we do. Then he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said, all these kingdoms have been turned over to me right now. And I'm willing to just give them to you right now. All that you have to do is worship me. And you can avoid the cross and you can get the kingdom. Take it for yourself. And you know, Jesus, that's God's plan for you to eventually have that kingdom. Why don't you just take it right now? Why don't you take it now for yourself and avoid all that pain and suffering? Take it now, right? Take it now. It's earthly. It's natural. It's demonic. It's taking something for yourself rather than receiving what God has given in this moment. And if, we are, if we're void inside, right, and we're listening to our own wisdom and earthly wisdom, then we're, there's going to be an emptiness in us and we're going to use our words to get something for ourselves. And that's what's happening. So the teachers that James is referencing here, it's not that they're teaching false doctrine. The problem is that they're teaching from motives that are not filled with God's wisdom Their motives are to grasp something for themselves, to use the position and the power of their words to take from the people rather than to give. Notice again what he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. You're trying to take from one another. You're bitter and you're you're jealous. Uh, Paul dealt with the same thing the preachers that followed behind him from city to city, he said, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, exactly the same vocabulary. You're jealous, you're taking. And you're even using your words to take something from people rather than to give to them because you're not full with what God has given you. So are you bitter and jealous and envious? Uh, last night, my wife said something to me that wasn't related to this at all. We were just we were talking about a completely unrelated topic. And she said, you know, um, in our, our little Christian culture that we live in now, sometimes we'll hear, we'll hear people say or will say ourselves, you know, I'm really struggling with comparison. You ever say that? I'm struggling with comparison. And that just sounds like just such a bland struggle. Okay, I'm struggling with comparison. I need to get over struggling with comparison. She said, you know, I think translated into... Biblical terms, that means I'm jealous and envious. I was like, ooh. Wow. Ah, yeah. Struggling with comparison. Meaning, I want what you want, what you have. I want that for myself. That's envy. That's jealousy. It's not just comparison. Right? And that will eventually be reflected out of our hearts into our speech. So are we content with what God has given us or are we jealous and are we envious when somebody else gets a date and you don't how do you feel when someone else gets married and you don't how do you feel when someone else gets a job and you don't how do you feel when somebody gets a promotion and you don't how do you feel when somebody gets a nicer house than you have and you can't move how do you feel when somebody has good health and you don't how do you feel Eventually, what James is saying is that that jealousy in our heart will be reflected out through our words. If we're not completely content with what God has given us in, the, in this life, we will use our words to grasp for things, right? To grasp rather than to give. And notice the result, verse 16. For where this jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is a disorder, and every evil thing, there is, there's chaos. Uh, that reminded me of, of what Paul saw in the church in Corinth. Uh, remember what he said in chapter 13, verse 1, first letter. He said, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul said, you have all of the spiritual gifts, all of them. And you've got them in big ways. And you've got all the words. You've got words in your known language you can prophesy. You've got words in unknown language that you don't know—the tongues of men and of angels. But you're using all of those things to exercise power and control and dominance over one another, and it's creating division. And as a result, uh, your church doesn't make music; you make noise. And the world looks in and they go, "That's that's chaotic. That's disorderly. That that's not something that I want to be a part of. That's not beauty." in your relationships, because your words have impact on one another. So he'll say later in chapter 14, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all of the churches of the saints. What is it that God wants for his people? He wants um, order, and he wants beauty, and he wants peace in our relationships, because that's what what really reflects him to the world. God's wisdom brings peace. Our wisdom brings uh, chaos and disorder and disharmony in our relationships. So uh, what exactly is uh, wisdom? Let's talk about that for a moment. It's a really important theme in James' letter. What what does it mean to be wise? Well, there are two facets biblically. The first is this discernment. Wisdom includes discernment. Discernment is understanding what's important and what's not important. As my uh, friend Dick Davison used to say, wisdom is understanding the relative importance of things. Not everything can be important. Not everything can be important. And and wisdom is discernment. It's knowing which things matter, which things matter the most. That is wisdom. Uh, It's discernment. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1. He said, this I pray for you, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Paul says, this is what I want for you. I want your your love, your relationships, to abound more and more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you literally may test and approve the things that differ. That is, the things that actually matter. That you can, you can understand the relative importance of things. I pray that you would have discernment in all things. Or listen to this description of Daniel. There's an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel. Uh, This observation was made by Belshazzar's mother. When Belshazzar's freaking out, he sees the hand on the wall. How do we know what this means? And his mom says, hey, relax, there's a wise person in our midst. And they bring in Daniel, and Daniel says, what? It's not me. All wisdom comes from God. He is the source of all wisdom. He knows all things. He sees all things. He knows which things are important and which things are not important. He has all discernment. He has all wisdom. And so the book of Proverbs will tell us the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because if I fear God most, then I understand that everything else is secondary. And I don't give myself to these secondary things. I give myself to God, and everything else lines up below that. That's discernment. That's an aspect of wisdom. There's a second part of wisdom, and that is skillful living. That is putting your discernment into your life, actually living it out in your life. Notice how J.I. Packer synthesizes these two ideas. He says, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. That is, wisdom is discernment, but it's not just discernment. It's putting the discernment into the choices that you make and into the words that you speak. It's living it out. So wisdom is literally skillful living in the book of Hebrews. I mean, in the Hebrew language. It is skillful living. It's not knowledge or education or intelligence or a certification on the wall. It's living in a a pattern that's consistent with God's priorities, and values. And what we're told throughout the book of Proverbs is that that works, right? That's the right way to live life. I, I actually read Proverbs always. I'm, there's never a time that I'm not. So I may be reading Bible in the year, but I'm reading Proverbs. I might be reading the book of Philippians, but I'm reading Proverbs. Every day I read Proverbs because I wanna be wise, right? I wanna, I wanna live my life in a way that, that actually aligns with God's purposes, and I love chapter 8 in the book of Proverbs because in that chapter, wisdom is personified as this, this beautiful woman. And, you know, she's inviting people to come to her and learn from her. And then she makes this, this comment. She says, when, when, even before God created, I was with him. And then when he began to create, I was with him. I was with him the whole time. I was like a master craftsman. The idea is this it's a master craftsman. God is just weaving and working wisdom into absolutely everything that he makes. So, wisdom is it's in the natural order of things, it's in the relational order of things, it's in the stars, it's in the sun, it's in the moon, it's in us, it's woven throughout. This is the way that life works. And if you go with the flow of God's wisdom, it works. It's not a promise that you will live longer or be wealthier, but it is a promise that all of your relationships will work better if you go God's way. Earthly wisdom is selfish. It's taking. God's wisdom is giving. It's blessing. It's healing. Earthly wisdom creates chaos and disorder and disunity. And James says, every evil thing, God's wisdom creates peace and it creates healing Notice again what he says in verse 17. The wisdom from above, God's wisdom, that God possesses and he offers to give to us freely. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. So if I can synthesize each of those characteristics, what he's saying is... uh, God's wisdom is for the good of the other, not grasping for the self. And the word that he uses there for unwavering is from the same root as the one who wants wisdom. Let him ask in faith without any doubting. And remember, we said the doubting is judging between. That is, God, give me your wisdom, and then I'll decide if I want to take it or if I want to go my way. That is the split soul, the double soul, the doubting mind, the mind that's divided. Will I actually go God's way? And God says, I need you to decide ahead of time that you'll go my way, then I'm going to give you my wisdom. And he's saying the wisdom from above is unwavering. It is completely in. It's all in. It's completely committed to God's way. And God's way is this, that you're you're for the good of the other person, and you trust me to meet your needs then your words are going to bring life and they're going to bring healing. Because I've woven wisdom through the fabric of the universe and my way works, always. Hold your place here in James and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And let's read in verse 3. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what James just said. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says, listen to God's wisdom. And it's a paradox, but if you put others above yourself, your life will be better. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he exists in the form of God, didn't regard that equality with God as a grasping thing, because our God is not a God who grasps. He's a God who gives. And that concept is one that's just in the last, like, four or five years just been running through my mind and really reshaping how I think of God. It's just a, it's just a remarkable thing to me to think That the creator of the universe made us, not because he had any void in himself, right? He didn't need us to exist. He was whole in in and of himself. He didn't need us. He didn't didn't make us so that we could give something back to him to make himself complete. He wasn't lacking in anything. He made us so that we could experience life. He made us to bless us. He made us to give. So what is our God by nature? His, His personality, his character is that he's a God who gives, not a God who takes, which is which is unlike any God ever conceived of in any other religion. In the other religions, their gods are always gods who make people so that they can take from people. And our God made us so that he could give to us. And he demonstrates that most vividly by, willing, by being willing to send his son, to condescend, to take on human flesh, to be rejected, beaten, and crucified by the people he had made. Wow. Why would a God do that? Because that's who God is. He's a God who gives. He's a God who actually gives what is most valuable to us so that we could experience his life in ourselves. And that's what he wants from us, that we would so experience his life in ourselves that we wouldn't have to grasp from other people, but we would actually have the capacity to regard their needs and desires and longings above our own, and that would be re- reflected out through our speech that would bring life. So notice again what he says, chapter 3 in James, verse 18, is says, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Your speech is like a seed, it goes into the ground, and its source will eventually be revealed God's wisdom plants a seed that brings peace. Remember, James' background is entirely Old Testament. That's his Bible. He thinks peace. He thinks shalom, which isn't just the absence of conflict. It is the fullness of God's blessing. James says, this is what you can do with your words for one another. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. Bring life. So how do we apply this? I want to share with you uh, just one verse as we close, and then three ideas. Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, I don't don't know if this is going to, like, scare some of you off from going to seminary, but I had to write a 30-page paper on, like, three verses, uh, and this is one of the verses that I had to write on. But I, it was really actually very fun and rewarding. Uh, but as I was digging into this verse in particular, like I'm pulling apart every single word. I'm doing word studies on every word. I learned that word unwholesome uh, would often refer to rotting fruit. All right, so Paul's saying... Um, When you open your mouth, it shouldn't stink, right? It shouldn't be like rotting fruit. It shouldn't be like that potato that got lost in the back of your refrigerator and you can't find it, but every time you open the fridge, you go, man, that really stinks, it smells. I gotta figure that out. It's just gross. What's in here, right? And it's just buried back there and you don't know it, but it's just rotting, right? And it's polluting everything else. Everything else in the refrigerator stinks and you open it up and the whole kitchen stinks and then the house stinks. He's saying, no rotting fruit, right? No rotting potatoes. Let no stinky word, Come out of your mouth. Instead, replace it with a word that brings grace and edification and builds up, That brings life to other people. So three words, three thoughts for application. The first is this, pray. Taming the tongue, taming your thumbs, not to hit send. You just can't do this on your own. You're not going to do it by trying harder. But God wants this for your life, and so ask him to have the Spirit take control of your heart so that what's reflected in your speech is life-giving. Pray, 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 pray. As you read the book of Proverbs over and over, you're going to be reminded that this is really an important area of your life, and you can beg God, God, please master this in my life. Let me grow, maybe not perfection, but move toward maturity in the words that I use. Pray. Second pause. Um, Mom was right. Hey, count to three. <laughs> count to ten maybe for some of us. Count, just keep counting for others. Right? Just slow down. Slow down. You know, the, the, it was the monks who developed the spiritual discipline of silence. And they would go for long periods of time saying nothing. And that didn't necessarily change the attitudes of their hearts, but it forced them to be a little more contemplative about the impact of their words because they'd want to say something but they couldn't say something they have to think about that and play it out right so just force yourself to slow down read proverbs and just highlight everything that it says about speech contemplate the impact and the power of words uh, the life or death that words can be and then third if you have to speak after you've waited and paused and counted make it words that bring life that build up and don't tear down, which sometimes includes words of challenge and rebuke, but often it's words of um, encouragement and praise, compliment that just puts wind in people's sails. Those are the words that uh, bring life to others. So I do want to give you one really, really specific application is this. Uh, Before you leave here this morning, um, you can do it in your car. You don't have to sit and wait, but before you leave here, you take out your phones and you text one word, of encouragement to a friend. Start building that muscle to hit send on those words that give life and not withhold those words that give life. Realizing that uh, this powerful gift God has given us, uh, we can use in the lives of one another just to to give us hope and courage and and strength and confidence to stay, stay, stay faithful to Jesus, to walk with Jesus for a lifetime. So just hit send, one person. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, I pray that we would feel convicted over the words that we speak. I pray if there's words that we've spoken, we need to go back and ask forgiveness. That we would do so, not making excuse, but that we would we would say words that would overcome the previous damage and begin to bring healing in a relationship. I pray, Father, that we would be people who who speak words of encouragement and life to one another. I pray that you bring a healthiness to our community because we don't withhold those good words. Pray, Father, you put a guard over our tongue. Slow us down. Remind us of the power of our words. May our speech this week reflect who you are. God who gives, God who doesn't grasp, God who serves and sacrifices. Let our words be marked by your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.